Chapter One of the Ghost Ship. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ghost Ship by John C. Hutchison. The Star of the North. The sun sank below the horizon that evening in a blaze of ruby and gold. It flooded the whole ocean to the westward, right up to the very zenith, with a wealth of opalescent light that transformed sea and sky alike into a living glory. So grand and glorious was the glowing harmony of kaleidoscopic coloring, which lit up the arc of heaven and the wide waste of water beneath, stretching out and afar beyond ken. Ay, and a coloring, too, that changed its hue each instant with marvelous rapidity, tint alternating with tint, and tone melting into tone in endless succession and variety. Throughout the day, the weather had looked more than threatening. From an early hour of the morning, the wind had been constantly veering and shifting, showing a strong inclination to back, and now the sea was getting up, and the white horses of Neptune had already begun to gamble over the crests of the swelling billows, which heaved up and down as they rolled onward with a heavy moaning sound, like one long, deep-drawn sigh. It looked as if the old monarch below, angered by the teasing of the frolicsome zephyrs, was gradually working himself up into a passion, which would vent itself, most probably, ere long, in a much more telling fashion than by this melancholy moan, so different to the sea-god's usual voice of thunder. Yes, it looked threatening enough in all conscience. A brisk breeze had been blowing from the nor'east before breakfast, but this had subsequently shifted to norward at noon, veering back again, first to the nor'east and then due east in the afternoon. The wind freshened, as the hours wore on, being now accompanied towards sunset by frequent sharp gusts, a sign betokening plainly enough to a seaman's eye that something stiffer was brewing up for us by and by. Glancing over the side, I noticed that our brave vessel, the Star of the North, was becoming very uneasy. She was running under her jib and foresail, with foretopsail and foretop gallant sail, being only square-rigged forwards, like most ocean steamers. But, in order to save coals and ease the engines, the skipper had set the fore and main trysails with gaff topsails and staysails as well, piling on every rag he could spread. With this press of canvas topping her unaccustomed hull, the poor old barky heeled over more and more as the violent gusts caught her broadside on at intervals, rolling to a bit on the wind fetching round aft, while her stern, lifting as some bigger roller than usual, passed under her keel. The screw would whiz round aimlessly in mid-air from missing its grip of the water, racing, as sailors say in their lingo, with a harsh grating jar that set my teeth on edge and seemed to vibrate through my very spinal marrow as I stood for a moment on the line of deck immediately over the revolving shaft. 
At the same time also that the after part of the vessel rose up on the breast of one billowy mountain, her forefoot in turn would come down with a resonant thwack into the valley intervening between this roller and the next. The buoyant old barky dipping her bows under and giving the star-crowned maiden with golden ringlets that did duty for her figurehead an impromptu shower-bath as she parted the indignant waves with her glistening black hull, sending them off on either hand with a contemptuous swish on their trying in mad desperation to leap on board, first to port and then to starboard as the ship listed in her roll. It was, however, but a vain task for these mad myrmidons of Neptune to attempt, strive as recklessly as they might in their wrath, for the good ship spurned them with her forefoot, and the star-crowned maiden bowed mockingly to them from her perch above the bobstay, laughing in her glee as she rode over them triumphantly and sailed along onward. And so the baffled roisterers were forced to fall back discomforted from their rash onslaught, swirling away in circling eddies aft, where anon the cruel propeller tossed and tore them anew with its pitiless blades, ever whirling round with painful iteration to the music of their monotonous refrain. Thump, 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 and ever churning up the already seething sea into a mass of boiling, brawling, bubbling foam that spread out astern of us in a broad, shimmering wake in the shape of a lady's fan, stretching backward on our track as far as the eye could see, and flashing out sparks of fire as it glittered away into the dim distance, like an ever-widening belt of diamonds fringed with pearls. The SS Star of the North was a large schooner-rigged cargo steamer, strongly built of iron in water-type compartments and of nearly 2,000 horsepower, but working up under pressure of nearly half as much again on a pinch, having been originally intended for the passenger trade. She belonged to one of the great ocean lines that run between Liverpool and New York, and was now on her last outward trip for the year, and rapidly nearing her western goal, the fastnet light, and according to our reckoning, when we took the sun at noon, in latitude 42 degrees, 35 minutes north, and longitude 50 degrees, 10 minutes west, that is, just below the banks of Newfoundland, our course to our American port, having been a little more southerly than usual for the season. This was in consequence of Captain Applegarth, our skipper, wishing, as I said before, to take advantage of the varying winds of the northern ocean as much as possible so as to economize his steam power and limit our consumption of fuel. For freights across the herring pond, as the Yankees call it, are at a very low ebb nowadays, and it is naturally a serious consideration with shipowners how to make a profit out of the carrying trade without landing themselves in the bankruptcy court. So they have to cut down their working expenses to the lowest point practicable with efficiency where full speed all the way is not a vital necessity, as in the case of the mail steamers and first-class passenger ships of enormous steam power and corresponding speed, which, of course, run up a heavy coal bill, for they always 
carry on all they can to and fro across the Atlantic, accomplishing the passage, now between Queenstown and Sandy Hook, veritable greyhounds of the ocean that they are, within the six days, all told, from land to land, and I, even this record, promises to be beaten in the near future. Prior to our leaving Liverpool on this voyage, the very day before we sailed, in fact, greatly to my surprise and satisfaction, as may be imagined, I was made fourth officer, the owners having unexpectedly promoted me from the position of apprentice, which I had filled up to our last run home without any thought of so speedy a rise. Of course, I had to thank my old friend Captain Applegarth for my good fortune, though why the skipper thus spoke up for me, I'm sure I cannot say, for I was very young to hold such a subordinate post, having only just turned my seventeenth year, besides being boyish enough in all conscience and beardless too at that. But be that as it may, fourth officer I was at the time of which I write. I recollect the evening well enough. It was on the 7th of November, the anniversary of my birthday, a circumstance which would alone suffice to imprint the date on my memory were I at all disposed to forget it. But that is not very likely. No, I can assure you. It would be impossible for me to do that, as you will readily believe, when you come to know my story, for on this eventful evening there happened something which, somehow or other, thenceforth, whether owing to what visionary folk term destiny, or from its arising through some curious conjecture of things beyond the limits of mere chance, appeared to exercise a mysterious influence on my life, affecting the whole tenor and course of my subsequent career. I had better tell you, however, what occurred, and then you will be able to judge for yourself." End of chapter 1 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas